Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Happy New Year, everybody. 2020 is finally here. And for a lot of us, man, we're running around saying, New Year, New Me. One of those things you might want to do this year is to get out of debt. Save yourself some money. Well, I can help you right now. It's SaveWithConrad.com. And here's the thing. If you put Christmas on a credit card, I can help you knock out that credit card debt just like that. And here's the thing about credit card debt. Not only is the break horrific, and I mean horrific, what you wind up doing is getting stuck making minimum payments, which means you wind up paying thousands of dollars in unnecessary interest. And oh, by the way, the interest you pay on your credit card is not tax deductible. Meanwhile, the interest you pay on your mortgage is tax deductible. And oh, by the way, it's not 19 or 20%. You know, it's better than that. Find out how much money you can save for free at savewithconrad.com. It's just a couple of quick clicks. And before you know it, we'll have you a few different money saving ideas. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. We're licensed in more than 40 states. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And this is no cost, no obligation. We won't waste your time. We routinely help our podcast listeners save five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. But how much can you save? It's free to find out right now. And yes, we can help you get out of that apartment and get into a brand new house with no money down. Maybe you're looking to upgrade or remodel the kitchens or bathrooms, maybe put in a pool. We got you covered there too. But most importantly, we want to help you get out of debt faster. If you're in a 30 year loan, Let me assure you, you're overpaying your single biggest bill. Really think about this. How old will you be when you finally pay your house off? Will your house payment prevent you from being able to help your kids avoid student loans? Will you retire with a house payment? Or don't you think you should retire your house payment before you retire? Think about the end of your loan and type in savewithconrad.com right now. We'll run the scenarios and show you how you could save 60, 70, even $80,000 worth of unnecessary interest right now at savewithconrad.com nmls number 65084 equal housing lender oh and how's this for starters no house payments for two months if you haven't already you don't have to make your january or your february payment you're done until march 1st at savewithconrad.com welcome to something to wrestle with something to wrestle with Bruce. Pritchard and Bruce, it's not Friday. It's New Year's Day. A little bonus action. What in the world is causing all this? 
His happy new year. By God, it's just another day in paradise, dog. Look, we, uh, my schedule's been crazy. Your schedule's been crazy. It's the end of the year. We made a boo-boo. We, we didn't have time to get a show out. And by God, we're getting it out regardless. So it's a bonus for the new year. 20 twiz honey is, uh, going to be a good one. Yeah, absolutely. A few weeks ago, we, uh, fell behind. It's just impossible for us to play catch up that week. Uh, we thought we could even up until the morning of, and then had to call an audible and do a best of it was supposed to be Armageddon 1999. And we are back today with Armageddon 1999 and commercial free. How about that? Bruce, we're not even getting paid for this. What the hell? Oh, well shit. Um, okay. So Armageddon, uh, my favorite was uh the main event to, that was a good stuff. yeah main event and um and that was it man it was, it was main you know event, how well, you know how i spend my days conrad how do you spend your days <laughs> i spend my days working hard on the go but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow i can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight happy new year everybody thanks for tuning in to right, something Bruce Pritchard. This where you say I will Shaka not say Khan. Shaka Khan yet. Oh, okay. All right. Well, let's, it ain't over, dog. Of course not. Let's get to it. December 12th, 1999 from the National Car Rental Center in Sunrise, Florida. Of course, we're in the suburbs of Fort Lauderdale. It draws another sellout. 15,749. Of course, it was announced on TV. It's a little more than that. That's everybody in the building. 17,054. Uh, of that 13,981 are paying customers a really nice gate uh, for 20 years ago or any day, 402,413 bucks, another 102 grand in merchandise. It does a pay-per-view buy rate of 1.1. So business is hot here in 1999 and really not everywhere else. It certainly feels like by December of 99, uh, both ECW and WCW are on the downswing. It's reported in the newsletters around this same time that WCW lost $10 million in 1999, which, uh, Dave says at the time would have been the largest loss in the history of wrestling for any one year for a single company. Uh, that is not the case here with the world wrestling federation. We're coming off the survivor series where we saw big show crowned as the new world champion. And by the way, Stone Cold Steve Austin, since he's bald and has a goatee, guess what? Got to hit that fucker with a car, man. You, you got it. And that really was to just cover up his neck surgery. He's going to be out for the next 11 months. So, uh, let's talk about that for a minute. Meltzer would write Austin is suffering from a combination of problems that will keep him out of the ring for at least the short term. In the last few weeks, he has wrestled, uh, and he was alarmed that he was both suffering from tingling and numbness in his arms, fingers, and shoulders. And after first getting reports, uh, from an exam on November 5th, they started to make new plans for the next several months based on the idea that he might not be able to wrestle for the foreseeable future. Allegedly the main storyline had Austin and rock as key players. No surprise there, but that plan is obviously going to change. Uh, originally we would have built towards a WrestleMania showdown, uh, with Austin as a heel champ defending and you know, I guess possibly the perception was he would lose the title to the babyface rock and give rock the much needed push to make him the new top star. But when these results come in, it's made apparent, uh, we got to do something now. 
Uh, so the plans include a quick attempt to push big show back to the main event level and more emphasis of the Vince McMahon character on television. Meltzer would say that the tests, including an MRI, uh, came in showing that Austin is suffering from stenosis, a narrowing, a narrowing of the spinal column, which has now started to squeeze the spinal cord. It's a similar condition that the wide receiver of the Dallas Cowboys, who's very famous in this era, Michael Irvin was suffering. And Meltzer would say there's a possibility he was born with this problem, uh, but it gets more serious uh, because of all the bumps that he's taken, of course. And he's also had some recurring disc problems. We know about those. They've been well documented going back to the Owen Hart episode of 1997 in the uh, SummerSlam. But still, this is not great. He's going to do some tests on November 19th where they shoot dye into the spine to get a more complete look of what is or isn't damaged. And he's going to not only see his own doctor in San Antonio, but get a a different opinion from Dr. Torg in Philadelphia, who is the leading neck specialist. So you guys, you know, the, the golden goose is hurt here again. And it sounds like a similar problem. The, uh, the stack of dimes, as they say, chat me up. What what, what were you guys thinking here? Dude, man, it was a bad time. It was unfortunately during this period, it felt like, you know, if it weren't for bad luck, Steve would have no luck at all. And he was going through and trying to work through a lot of the, the pain and the symptoms thinking that, okay, man, you know, if I, I work through it and Steve's one of those guys that is not always going to tell you everything that's going on with him. But when he started getting the tingling and Steve started having the symptoms more frequently than not, it worried him. And it worried us because you could tell, you could tell there was just something off a little bit in the way that Steve was working, whether he was a little bit more careful in the ring and the way that he moved in the ring. So for Steve to step up and say, Hey, raise his hand and, and say something in the first place, you know, it's got to be hurting him really bad. And Steve's a proud guy. He just doesn't, you don't want to let himself down. He doesn't want to let other people down. Um, so yeah, this was a, this was a shitty time because we're looking at it going, we can't make plans with him until we know exactly what the situation is. And there were just still at this point, so many questions that were left unanswered. And we should mention this is, uh, way more serious than we can probably accurately explain, but Austin is still doing interviews saying, nah, I feel pretty good. Uh, he's quoted, you know, a lot of times, including the Dallas morning news where he's saying, you know, I'm able to work out and I'm moving around pretty good, but my status is unknown because we don't know how bad I'm hurt. So it's one of those deals where you got to wonder how much of that is the real answer and how much of that is just, you know, the, the, the way the business has brought people up, which is to say, oh no, I'm fine. Let's rub some dirt on it. Let's keep going. Did you guys have, how much of a worry did you have that? Hey, this is our, our, our blue ribbon here. I mean, this is our meal ticket. And if he's worried about losing his spot or losing some momentum or cooling off or whatever the wrestling cliches are, we could risk long-term injury to him. And that's not good for anybody. No, it's not. And the other issue with it was just the unknown and having you can go to 10 different doctors and you'll get 10 completely different opinions. Right. 
so that was troubling because I think that there was a part of Steve that Steve was looking for the answer that he wanted to hear. And in this particular situation, there were doctors that were giving him hope. And then there were doctors that were telling him, hey, Steve, maybe you need to hang up the boots. I don't think any of them at this period were saying, nah, Steve, man, you're good to go. And I think that's what Steve was looking for. But he also hung on to that glimmer of hope that you can work through this, man. This will, this will be all right. And whether it's a minor surgery or we do some rehab here, um, we'll work our way through it. And I think that's what Steve and everybody else was, was hoping for. But at the same time, we're looking at the long term and the health of him overall, because if he's not healthy or something happens to him that he's paralyzed, that's not good for anybody, obviously. So you're wanting to say, let's get you healthy for the long run. We can deal with the short run here. You know, business is good. We can fucking deal with it. We can make some adjustments and, and, um, change as we go along, but the priority was his health and saying, okay, get you better. And let's figure out what's going on here. Let's talk briefly about what the creative could have been here. Allegedly the plan at survivor series was for triple H to get the win. Uh, there would have been some sort of, uh, interference or a weapon used and, uh, basically a schmoz where the rock costs Austin, uh, the title at the no mercy show. And now we're just going to sort of do the same thing here where, somebody sidesteps and this time Austin hits rock or something like that. But then it's written that maybe the next plan would have been Austin finally beats Hemsley for the title at Royal rumble. And that sets up rock and Austin. Do you think as we head into 2000, that's the direction you guys were going to head. The title switch would have happened at Royal rumble. Austin would have finally beat Hunter and then, you know, rock and Austin at WrestleMania in 2000. I think the natural was, Rock and Austin probably at that point because it just was, it was really so easy. And the two biggest stars in the world were Rock and Austin at the time. So to build to that only made sense. It was also during a period of time where, as a company and looking at WrestleMania and how WrestleMania had been delivered for so many years, where you had whether it be uh, celebrities or just outside involvement, this was a time that Vince was looking at the company going, we're the stars and we're going to make WrestleMania all about us and all about the company. And that became the focus. Now it's gone back and forth both ways uh, in between now and then. But at this point, 99, I think that our stardom, the WWE talent and stories and everything else was bigger than anything from the outside that we could bring in. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, where we are with this surgery. Uh, it comes out that he's got a combination of a bone spur in his neck, a spinal disc protrusion in the mid neck region. We've talked about how the narrowing of the spine makes this all more complicated. The actual surgery he's going to have to have means portions of his C3 and C4 discs in his neck will be removed. 
along with the bone spur in order to decompress the spinal cord, relieve the pressure and widen the spinal canal in that area. And then they're going to do a bone graft from his pelvis and use it to fuse the two discs together. This is fucking unbelievable. When you think about that, especially when on the other side, you say he should live a relatively pain-free life moving forward. Good Lord. This seems like this is, uh, invasive, complicated, risky, all the bad words you don't want when you're thinking about surgery with your top guy. Well, and when you're talking about neck surgery as well, because there are so many variables there. And if you go a fraction the wrong way, it's, it's all over. So you throw all of those things and you have every worst case scenario that you can possibly think of. That's well, by God, you, you've got them all here in a nutshell and it sucked. I mean, it really sucked because you're, you were at a point where you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, but you've got to, you just got to make sure that, that he's okay for, for all the right reasons. Let's keep it moving here. Um, let's talk a little bit about some other folks. Meltzer would say as things pertain to Mick Foley's future, the plan seems to be to ease up his schedule. There was at least talk of doing a retirement announcement and maybe a retirement tour, but that was next. I was given the indication that he himself didn't want to announce a retirement and then doing angles to come out of retirement. Like everyone else in wrestling has done, or maybe when the suggestion was brought up, others thought it wouldn't be a good idea with all the dishonest retirements in wrestling. So right now, the decision is that no retirement announcement will be made. The plan is to keep him as a major television character in some sort of a regular role. And then a few times a year, probably leading to major shows. So shoot an angle and do a match similar to how the WWF has booked folks like Pat Patterson and Bruno San Martino towards the end of their careers. What were your conversations like with Mick in this era? I think everybody remembers he became uh, a legend at the King of the Ring show in 1998. That was about 18 months prior to this. Is he openly having conversations about, I don't know how much longer I can do this. Or is the office coming to him saying, you know, you don't have to do all this. We'll find a spot for you on TV and keep you on the payroll, but let's maybe think about not wrestling. My recollection was it came from Mick and Mick was looking at slowing down and Mick was, you know, he had done his book and very successful with that, but it was also a point of, Every day getting up was a little bit more difficult, and I, I have to chuckle because Mick did have that feeling. Mick only wanted to retire one time. Right. And when he was done, he was done. And it, because I believe even I made the, the comment to Mick about his retirement going, yeah, well, by God, you know, we'll have the Terry Funk come out of retirement uh, tour number 23. And I said, you've got at least 18 in you, Nick, Mick. And, uh, he just, no, 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 man. You know, I just, you know, if I'm going to call it quits, man, I really want to just call it quits. And that was, I, I believe that that was all very genuine, but he was also the first one after he retired coming as soon as he retired, not as soon as he retired, but very soon after he retired, coming back with ways to use him and implement him. And, hey, yeah, maybe if I could just come back and I do this one little spot here, 
So that's the uh, – you just have to get a chuckle whenever you hear guys say that, you know, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. And They're not done. They don't want to be. They're not done. You're never done. It brings you back, man. I thought I was done. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, well. Uh, let's talk about where business is because this is maybe one of the reasons nobody wants to be done. Nobody wants to take time off. Business is a booming. And now attendance is down a little bit from December of 98 to December of 99, but so nominally that it could just be based on venue sizes in December of 98, your average attendance is 12,963. A year later, your average is 11,794, which would still be strong today. Your average gate, it's actually up, uh, in December of 98, it was 298 grand and change. We're up 3.7% to 309,000 and change. And by the way, 100% of your house shows were sold out in December of 98. By December of 99, 71.4% sold out. Uh, but ratings, meanwhile, tell a different story. Your average rating in December of 98, 4.97. Your average rating in December of 99, 5.94. They're up 19.5%. I don't know what, what's more telling here that... You know, where it seems like when you look at the traditional indicators for business, you have less folks attending, but more money at the gate and you're selling out fewer shows, but your ratings are up 20%. Do you think this is wrestling as a whole cooling off a little bit? Certainly the rating switch can be attributed to WCW cooling off. I mean, that's a big boost. That's easy to explain, but when you see that, Hey, we were selling out 100% of our house shows, which is remarkable. And it's probably never happened in wrestling history before. And now we're selling out 71%, 71% sold out as a home run in any era, but it does make me wonder, are you guys starting to think, oh no, if WCW is not on their toes, maybe we need to push ourselves. What, what do you remember? Without a doubt, from the standpoint of competition, looking at WCW and anybody else that was going to be out there just say shit um when you have competition and you have strong competition it gets everybody off of their toes and gets it, it makes you want to compete and it makes you want to overcome if you will and that ceased to exist with wcw by this point because their their ratings their business everything had gone into the toilet and it didn't have any mm, – there wasn't any big hope on the other side of it. Right. So you're, you're looking at it going, well, they might have this, and it just wasn't there. So I think there was a little bit of, um, okay, let's ride the wave and, and keep going. I, don't, I still don't think at this point, even though there were rumblings – I don't think even here that people were thinking, oh, they're going out of business. Right. Just thought this is a lull. This is, you know, downtime and everything will come back. Well, and because, it was the beginning of the end. But it didn't happen for you guys that way. You guys hit a lull and then you came back. So it's probably natural right. that everyone would think, oh, well, they're just going to do what we did. They'll regroup and come up with some big idea and that'll pull the nose up. Yes, and you you know everybody that has the argument that rest, the wrestling business is cyclical. Um, yes and no, I, I think it is, but it's also um, based on 
what you have to present to the audience and what you have as far as, uh, maybe you're something creative. People want to see. Maybe you're creative is cyclical. I mean, that's the reality, right? It could be, you know, I think that there, there are times that yes, that, that happens and that it is, it, it definitely fucking happens. Let's, uh, let's talk about, um, one of the other things that, that I've been looking forward to seeing is the way we're going to address, um, the content of the show, because it does feel like in different eras, you know, we're, I, I don't know that it's been called this internally, but fans have decided that we're now in the, in the PG era, but we're definitely knee deep in the attitude era here. And there was a, an article in the wall street journal where Vince was actually quoted saying, you'll see less aggression, less colorful language, less sexuality. Some of the more controversial characters may not appear on a regular basis on SmackDown. Obviously SmackDown was not airing on cable at this point, but talk to me a little bit about when you remember there being a, a decision, whether it was conscious or, or whatever that, Hey, we're going to start to taper some of the stuff that got us here. Because it's in the long-term best interest of the business. Well, I think that just looking at what avenues that you have open and looking at being able to open up your shows to whether it be bigger advertisers, but a bigger audience. And, and when you are looking at the makeup of your live events, I think we were seeing less and less families that – Everything's good, but I think that business is is a lot better when everybody's coming out, when it is a whole family outing and you, you bring mom, dad, and the kids and everybody goes out and you have a big experience versus just you and a couple of buddies. So I think looking at it, being able to attract a wider variety of viewers and be able to, to look at that, the demo that we were missing, and that was that younger demo. Um, it was the teenagers were there, but right before that, you know, I think that we were lacking a little bit and just trying to, to broaden, broaden those demos. It's worth mentioning too, because I feel like whenever we talk about the decision to sort of, you know, have a paradigm shift with the content of the show, everybody just immediately goes to say, Oh, they're doing that for advertisers. But realistically, you've also got to consider the other income streams, you know, for instance, if a movie studio, uh, makes, uh, a super, uh, an Avengers movie, or they make uh, a Shrek or whatever, uh, some sort of animated version. Well, they can then go and license lots of toys, lots of lunch boxes, lots of backpacks, lots of pajamas. They can probably broker a deal with a fast food restaurant and get the little toys and all the happy meals or whatever the case may be. And the WWF when I was a kid, man, they were on everything and you know, they were on not just action figures, but wrestling buddies. And here's the thing. If you're only catering to the adult demo, the male, you know, 25 year old, he ain't buying wrestling buddies. He ain't going to get the happy meals. You need those other revenue streams to really get you to the next level, which has been proven out in the movie industry, right? Absolutely. It's been proven out in any successful entertainment industry. And there's a show, and you and I have talked about this off air on Netflix, about the toys that made us or the toys of our childhood. 
and you go back and they did one on uh, actually wrestling figures and action figures and just the different toys through the years that had been developed and talk about the, the buddies, the wrestling buddies you just mentioned. But some of that that was lacking later on because it was a more mature audience. So you, you miss that. And I think it just goes with any successful entertainment entity. You're not going to be, be able to, even though we did. So don't get me wrong. Don't people go, Oh God damn, you sold Steve Austin uh, action figures. Yes, we did. And sold an awful lot of them, but we wanted to sell more and right. we wanted to be able to just broaden that demographic and maybe with a little less violence, maybe with a little less, um, sexual innuendo that, that may make a turn and broaden the audience and let mom watch or let mom allow everybody else in the household to watch. I do think it's fascinating because we've heard over the years that, you know, like the number one selling t-shirt in wrestling was Austin 316. It beat the Hulkamania shirt. And I don't, I don't have any source to back this up, but I bet there were more Hulk Hogan action figures sold than stone cold, Steve Austin action figures. And I got to think that's based on just who the audience was at the time. Adults buy more t-shirts than they do toys. You know what I mean? This is true. And probably if you were going to go from, you know, the period of time to when they hit and, you know, apples to apples, I think piecewise that the Austin 316 shirts, um, definitely would have beaten the Hulkamania shirts. And I think that probably the Hulk LJN, because they were the only game in town. Right. And they were the first. So it was so big, so fast that, yeah, I bet you that in the period of time, longevity wise, I, I don't know because of the collectors and that's become a whole completely different market, um, with the collectors out there, which God, if you know, you only knew then what, you know, now would have been a whole different world. This change happens very abruptly. I mean, clearly there is a, a new edict pushed down. You know, we're going to have more clothes on the hose. That's a real thing. And, uh, we're going to bleep some words and some promos. I think triple H had like slut and whore, which probably never belonged in a wrestling show anyway, bleeped out. And then road dog had his catchphrase. He would make some slight alterations to that. He wouldn't say shiznit or doggy style. He would say poo poo and doggy chow. Uh, they would also change some references to pimps and hoes in the Godfather's speech and maybe drop all references to quote unquote, you know, lighten a fatty for this pimp daddy. So the evolution of the show happens fairly abruptly here at the end of 99, which is fascinating because, and I know it's going to sound like we're picking on him, but Vince Russo would say that the reason his WCW stint wasn't more successful was because he couldn't do what the WWF was doing, uh, you know, sort of catering to that adult audience. Meanwhile, the WWF themselves is walking that back a little bit. It's just sign of the times as well here, right? Sure. It was and that was just an excuse for Russo. You know, if, if this isn't where it has to be because of something else, it can't be because well, maybe you don't have a filter anymore. Maybe it wasn't you. I don't know. Um, send your tweets to, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. Whoa, 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 uh, no. At Bruce and, Richard said all that. That was not me. <laughs> but, um, 
you know, that that's just facts, though. And and we were we were looking at, OK, maybe we need to, to rein it in a little bit and just you're looking at broader audiences and the broader your audience, the more opportunity that there is for everything. Wade Keller had something uh, that he felt like he needed to report. This is word for word here. Chris Jericho responded to recent torch reports about injuring others in the ring. His November 18th message said, no matter what the sheet writers, internet prognosticators and various other critics think the only person who can convince me that I've had a good match or a bad match is me. And believe me, I know when I've had a stinker, I've had plenty before Jericho concluded his updated by sarcastically writing last week. Due to accidentally sitting on the comb of Prince Albert, I got into a pull apart with Vince McMahon and Stan Stasiak. I then inadvertently broke the nose of Tess before falling into a car that drove right into Steve Austin. Linda McMahon was going to fire me for that, but I had already been fired by Jim Ross for four performances in my match and not getting any reaction from the crowds or house shows. So I will lose every match until December 31st, 1999. And after that time, I'll return to WCW to become a tag team with the returning Kendall Wyndham as the new conquistadors. So of course, Jericho is under fire here in his, uh, uh, as he winds down his first year in the WWF. And I guess he was getting a reputation for injuring others in the ring, at least in the newsletters. Do you think that he was earning such a reputation backstage or is this just news, newsletter guys doing what they do? And also too. Do you think he made the right call addressing it? Well, you know, there's only so, so much a lot of times that you can take from ill-informed and people that can just write whatever they want under the auspices of, I have a source and they don't have to divulge their source. They don't have to actually back anything up that they say with facts um, and they could just say whatever they want to, and then they're deemed experts by some. So I think there's a frustration in that with every performer. And when they do say things like, oh, well, this guy's dangerous, this guy, um, everybody hates him, it takes a life on, of its own on. So there are those that you got to take it with a grain of salt. And then there's also that point where you say, you know what? Fuck you, you little piece of shit. Never fucking done anything in your life to actually ever do business uh, in this business that you like to pick apart. And I think it's just a frustration. And it's a fair frustration to have for people that don't know the truth, that have never actually ever been in that spot or even been around it other than fringe on the outside listening to disgruntled friends or their buddies that, that like to laugh at the same, you know, high spots and shit. Um, it just gets frustrating, you know, and I same frustration I have. So there you go. Let's talk a little bit about Randy Savage. Uh, Wade would write that there's tons of rumors about Randy Savage's status, but no solid news as to whether he'll resign with WCW or join the WWF in January. He says that JR has noted in his column on the website that they had no plans to negotiate with Randy Savage and haven't spoken to him in quote, quite some time. Uh, but of course, Ross did say, never say never, I guess, allegedly, um, nobody wants to meet his demands and Wade saying, including the WWF, but he does say quote, because the WWF may need a big time to fill slots. If Austin and Foley aren't able to wrestle full time next year. 
The industry belief is the WWF will be more likely than WCW to sign Savage in January. And Meltzer would say that everyone is hearing from Stephanie Bellers, gorgeous George in WCW, the macho man's girlfriend, that she's going to the WWF. Now we've talked about the macho man a lot. Do you remember there ever being conversations at the end of 99 that Randy may want to come back? The last conversations that I had with Randy were probably around 97, 96, 97-ish. Um, and I was involved in those conversations and those dealings. During this time, from our vantage point, uh, there wasn't really any interest in Randy. But there were rumblings out there. And I know that his girlfriend, Gorgeous George, was floating out testing the waters with uh, her agent and I guess Randy's agent, one in the same, just seeing who would be interested. And it was a lead to us that, hey, Gorgeous George is available. Is there any interest on this side? And by the way, would there be any interest in Randy Savage? And to my knowledge, I, I know from my vantage point when it was brought in anything I was involved with, there just wasn't any interest at that point for Randy. They thought that kind of, it was too much. We'd have to pay way too much for him basically to get gorgeous George that nobody really knew one way or another. You know, what, what, what's that value really? What was, what was George worth and beautiful young lady, but I don't know at that point, what else that she had ever done. And, Asking a lot of money. So the, there was agents floating things out. And I think the o- agents were probably feeding all this to, to the dirt sheets and to the press and to anybody that would listen to try and boost their price up. Oh, my God. Everybody's everybody wants Randy. Everybody wants Gorgeous George. It wasn't that big of a deal. What about Ric Flair? I ask because Meltzer would say there's also clearly WWF interest right now in Ric Flair. And that just sort of jumps off the page of me that, that in late 99, there's interest in flair. I think there's always going to be, you know, when I I say this, um, I think there was always interest in Rick for the long term, And what I mean by that is the role of Babe Ruth and that role of the guy that you could put in pretty much any situation, the best mess best dressed man in the business. I always like to tell him because the son of a bitch looks, you know, this pisses me off. Flair can walk into what's a steakhouse. We don't roost Chris in basically workout shorts and a t-shirt and look better than most of the guys that are uh, sitting in there in three piece suits. He just looks good in clothes. He always looks presentable in first class. So well, I, I, I say I, all that to say that, yes, there was talk at that point, even of if Rick was looking for something that maybe Rick could come in and be that ambassador for the WWE and everybody respected Rick and liked Rick. So Rick was always floating. Hey, my deal's coming up. Anybody out there want me? Can I get a better deal? And Rick also was under contract to WCW and AOL Time Warner. So I think it was mainly just talk. Let's keep it moving here. I know you're going to have fun with this. This is word for word from the torch. A handful of indie wrestlers who had WWF tryouts lined up through Terry Taylor 
are reporting that they have been treated rudely by Bruce Pritchard when trying to reschedule their dates. Of course, behind the scenes, Terry Taylor has just went back to WCW. Um, but this tickled me. They are reporting that they have been treated rudely by Bruce Pritchard. Your retort. Okay. Well, so again, they're nameless, faceless, um, reported in a, in a torch sheet that the only, the only name in there is the tryouts lined up through Terry Taylor. There becomes this issue when someone leaves that, oh my God, you know, Jim Cornette, great example. You know, when Jim left, well, people would go back and use Jim. Oh, hey, Jim promised me this tryout. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but there was nothing on the books for it. No one else knew about it. And I can imagine the same thing here with, I don't know who you are. I don't know anything about a tryout that was scheduled. Nothing was scheduled with travel or for anybody else to know. And you move on from there. Send me your stuff. We'll be happy to take a look at it and happy to see if uh, we can possibly arrange a tryout in the future. But right now I'm, I'm talking to someone blind over the phone. I can sure, I'm sure they probably thought I was rude because I didn't just say, Hey, yes. Okay. Come on in. Here's your date and not know who they were. So unfortunately what happens a lot of times you've got to start that process all over again. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, Notre Dame. It comes out in the torch as well, that the WWF is not going to be running shows here at the university of Notre Dame. Uh, apparently the last time they ran South Bend, the university insisted that company officials sign waivers against uh, swearing, sexuality, lewd gestures, etc. Uh, apparently Steve Austin was so upset by this. He decided not to work the event. Godfather told the crowd he wasn't allowed to bring his girls. And Billy Gunn was upset to the point that even though he was told not to, he did the suck it chant. Um, this is very much a company in transition where you've got a lot of guys who've made a lot of money with a certain act. And now we need to tailor it a little bit. Do you remember there being any significant pushback from any of the boys Uh, or does Vince eventually just pull everybody together and say, guys, you know, like it or not, this is what we're, this is what we're doing. Yeah, there was pushback, and the pushback was from the, the comfort of this is this is my gimmick, this is what I've done, and people aren't going to accept me and respond the same way if I do a watered-down version. And we found, obviously, that it's not a watered-down version. It's a little bit different version. It's a little bit more PC. Um, I hate that word, too. But y- you find that the audience will accept it if you do it just as well and you don't dwell on, well, we used to do this, but yes, there was, there was pushback from guys that had been used to doing it one way. And that's the way they wanted to do it. And they were, there was fear that if I clean up my act, I'm not going to have the audience behind me the way they were before. And that's just not the case. Uh, we should mention on the November 22nd raw, Uh, DX's limo pulls into the arena parking lot. Vince McMahon snaps, drives his car into DX's limo. Vince climbs out of his car, smashes the window out of the limo as DX runs away. Inside the arena, Shane's crew is trying to hold back Vince, who's pounding his bat on DX's locker room door. And we would see that until the police show up and arrest him. 
and they're actually putting Vince in handcuffs and, and taking him out. They eventually lead him to a squad car. And of course, DX is taunting him later. We see uh, Vince led into the booking room and they're fingerprinting him. And, uh, of course, triple H comes to the ring for a promo and the crowd is chanting asshole at him. And he says something like you have no idea how big of an asshole I can be. And they show highlights of Vince smashing his car into the DX's limo and triple H accuses Vince of driving the car that struck Austin. And he says he's going to press charges on Vince because quote, it was my civic duty as a responsible citizen to put that man away. And of course, later in the show, the officers tell Vince that his bail has been posted and he's free to go back. Um, but he can't, I mean, he's free to leave, but he can't go back to the arena. And as you may imagine, Vince is going to be there at the end. Bastard. Uh, Vince pushes triple H off, uh, off the stage and throws a chair on him, uh, to end the show. So we're doing our best in the absence of stone cold, Steve Austin to do more with Vince. It's not the original plan. What did you think of this pivot? Well, it's not. And it was the equivalent to hot shotting in a lot of respects because you had to make a very strong right turn versus the road that you were already traveling down. So it, it had to be shocking and it had to be big. And you look at what was the most popular, you know, most popular character on the show, bar none, was Mr. McMahon. So you've got Steve Austin, you've got The Rock, and then you've got Vince. Well, who's going to be there that you know of? Definitely. No matter what. They're never going to leave the company. They're, they're always going to be there, and that was... Mr. McMahon character. And this was probably at, at the height of that. Uh, Meltzer would report that, uh, on the UPN deal, UPN is paying $300,000 a week uh, for the time slot. So that's $15 million as a minimum. But if the show is sold out, it could be in the $23 million range, uh, which is, is pretty good. Are you, how pleased were you guys with UPN as a partner? Like any, you know, new partnership, they, they were absolutely wonderful. And it was, you had been with USA for so long. And I think that there was a time with USA network, especially during this time where we had made some changes and different things, but where you kind of are taken for granted a little bit and now there's a, a bidding war going on out out there for different shows. SmackDown being a part of the Viacom family, it was, you know, it was nice to be wanted. And it was nice to work with a network that was coming back to you for ideas to promote the show and to promote your talents versus, well, hey, we've got the number one show on on our on our cable and they're doing great. We really don't need to do much to promote them. Um, so that's as far as UPN and Viacom, they, they were a terrific partner in the beginning. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the business from the three month period ending, uh, October 29th, the company grossed $88 million, which means that the company was on track to gross $350 million over the course of the year. Uh, but the profit for this quarter is down uh, to 7.8. It was 12.2, the same quarter, uh, a year prior, 
but the overall revenue is way up this year. So the year prior, you had a $12 million profit on a $53 million gross. This year, you've got a $7.8 million profit on an $88 million gross. It's always fascinating to me when you examine as a business grows, as the company is here, man, that overhead goes with it. So the profit, even though it looks like you're making a lot more money, that's not always the case, right, Bruce? Well, it is, but also at the same time, you, you know, there are one-time costs, there are taxes, everything comes in and you may have to write it off on one quarter where the next quarter looks, holy shit. Oh my God. Profits are off the charts. Now it just depends on where, where a lot of those expenses are taken out and, and when they are actually claimed. So is with anything, you, you kind of got to be in it for the long haul and look at it, you know, not just for a year, not just for two years, but several years on down the line. And when you look at the business from what it was, holy shit, just 10 years previously at this point, um, it, it was an amazing journey and, you take it to a publicly traded company and what it was worth in 1999 and then, you know, to a multi-billion dollar company, it's scary, but it's, I always look back and like ratings and everything else, man, you'll have, you'll have a low and then you'll have a great high and, um, the lower the lows, the higher the highs sometimes, but it just, you got to take everything into consideration. And this just may be a point where, a lot of things were written down on that quarter that they had to take out. Well, let's talk about something that, uh, was not taken out the November 29th raw pretty famous episode here. This is the episode where test and Stephanie were supposed to get married. Uh, DX would come to the ring and triple H would explain how Vince has made the situation personal. And he's threatening to beat McMahon within an inch of his life at Armageddon. And he also says, there's not going to be a wedding tonight. And of course that brings out Vince who says, there's nothing I won't do to protect my family. And he promised that he would have triple H's blood on his hands at Armageddon. And as a gift, he gave test a match with triple H. Of course, test is going to be his son-in-law at the end of the night. And he says, no one would be involved in the wedding, but family and that he would fire anyone who interfered. And we also see a scene from the previous night's Las Vegas bachelorette party for Stephanie McMahon, of course, Mae young and the fabulous Mueller there wishing the bride well. And we also see Carlos, the electrician entertain the ladies before may and, and Mueller take him away. And then we see a guy bring in champagne to Stephanie, which I guess in storyline, this fellow was in cahoots with triple H and maybe he, uh, put something in her drink. Later in the show, we would see test beat triple H and Vince was wearing a Vince McMahon mask and he's the referee and he's totally favoring triple H eventually, as you can imagine, test is going to come off the top and Vince is going to fast count him. Triple H tells police that Vince had violated his order that he couldn't come within 50 feet of him. The cops are going to check on it, but the stooges Patterson and Briscoe say, Nope, Vince was in the bathroom the whole time. Just stand right here. You can smell it. It's real life. Uh, after the match, more of the party is shown. And then we see backstage Hunter demanding that Vince be arrested. And as the cops are questioning him, he is of course, denying it all. We see the bridemaids preparing for the wedding. And now it's finally time. Test is here with his entrance music. 
He's not announced as Andrew Martin, of course. He's Tess, and he's marrying Stephanie McMahon, by God. And when they do the old speak now, forever hold your peace bit, Triple H comes out, surprise, and it shows a video of Stephanie passed out and doing the whole quickie wedding drive through chapel in Vegas. It's a little white chapel. It was the same place that I got married. Jim Ross got married, and some other guy, Michael Jordan, I think, got married there. And Britney Spears, I think. Really? So anyway, right. in this drive-thru, Triple H, as Stephanie is there, passed out, answers for her, and they announce her as man and wife. And then as, as the show is going off the air, Triple H says they've consummated the marriage many times. And you see uh, the Jurassic Park face of Stephanie McMahon as she's letting out a big roar. Interesting little angle. One of the most famous in raw history. It does really, really well. Uh, raw gets a 5.98 that night. Nitro gets a 3.04. Really pretty remarkable. What do you remember about this angle? It certainly is one that people are still talking about today. Well, I think it was the, the swerve that no one saw coming with triple H and Stephanie. So I think that from that vantage point, it worked out great. And Little White Chapel was, I think it's, it started out almost is, is that rib, is that joke is, oh, God damn, you know, just go through the drive through uh, wedding. And, um, it's like, okay, that's cool. Uh, <laughs> Jim Ross and I both highly recommended it because it's where we got married and it just became a thing. And, but I thought it was pulled off beautifully, um, from especially from the standpoint of the shock factor, no one, no one saw it coming ahead of time. No one knew that we'd gone out to Vegas to go out and do that shit. And to that degree, it, it worked very well. No, it definitely did. And people are still talking about it. So clearly you guys were on to something. Let me ask, what's your favorite wedding angle in wrestling history? Hmm. Yeah, do you have one? I would. Yeah, actually, I, I, I have a couple, and that was um, Eric Bischoff on SmackDown Chuck with and Billy. Billy and Chuck. Yep. Because it was just, it, again, no one saw that one coming, and it was completely out of the blue. There was that, and then I also loved the one with, uh, with Kane coming up through the ring with Lita was another great spot that just you knew it was going to happen and it was just so absurd the way it happened it all worked out well uh, weddings are good usually, usually. Uh, inside edition on november 30th is doing a, a feature on this wedding as if the whole thing is a shoot which is just tremendous i mean inside edition is a work uh, get out of here <laughs> Uh, Stop it. Meltzer would report that Shamrock is cleared to return in mid December, that he'll probably be back right after the Armageddon pay-per-view. Uh, and it says his injury was diagnosed as a soft tissue sprain, of the cervical spine. And the diagnosis is that there's a better than usual chance that down the road, he'll have to have a neck fusion because he suffered a broken neck back in high school. And he's eventually going to have to get that fixed. You know, I start to see a, th a theme here. When you see all of these guys popping up with neck injuries, this has to be the reason that eventually you guys say, okay, 
no more of this move, no more of that move. Right. Yeah. We had already gotten to the point of there were no more pile drivers and those were out. I remember the one exception or actually there were two exceptions, the undertaker's, uh, tombstone on certain people and Mick Foley's version of the pile driver. And I remember taker going to, to Vince and saying the way Mick does it, it's so safe. And it's, it's, you know, those two were about the only ones that were allowed to do anything resembling dropping somebody on their head that way. Um, even though for the most part, most of the time, pile driver can be safe, executed the correct way. Uh, I'd let Jerry Lawler do it. Um, I'd let Taker do it. I'd probably let Mick Foley do it. Beyond that, I don't know that there are that many people I would let drop me on my head. Um, so, yes, definitely re-examine it because the injuries were kind of starting to stockpile. Let's talk about a big name that is, uh, oh, I guess I should mention, even though it's predicted that, that, that Shamrock's going to come back, he doesn't wind up coming back. Instead, he returns to MMA. Why does his run come to an end? Was it more of him just thinking there's more money in that at the time? Did he have issues with someone in the front office with WWE? Anything like that you can remember? No, Ken wanted to fight. Ken wanted to, felt he had so many money-making years left in the fight game. And if he didn't go then, I think there was, um, I don't want to say doubt, because there was never any doubt with Ken. Ken just wanted to fight. Ken enjoys fighting. He would, so, have, been, he would have been roughly 35, so that would have probably yeah. been his prime earning years there. Right, and he just looked at, if he didn't do it then, that it may have gotten to the point where he was maybe a little too old to go back to that type of training and, and go back into it at that time. So it was his decision. Do you think at that point he had peaked in the WWF? I mean, do you think that you guys could have done more with him? Would it have looked any differently had he stuck around? I do think there was uh, something left with Ken. I really do. I think Ken was an extraordinary talent. and But at the same time, when you have someone that feels that they could do more outside of your venue, you got to let them go. No, I get that. Now let's talk about somebody who doesn't want to let go. They're excited to jump in with both feet. It's fitness model, Trish Stratus. Dave Meltzer would report. She was backstage at the mayhem pay-per-view and worked on the law internet radio show. And, um, she's just signed a three-year developmental deal with the idea that she'd be an in-ring wrestler. And she had a provision that no nudity would be involved. Apparently she had turned down, turned down some big offers for magazines and, and fitness modeling gigs based on the fact that she didn't want any nudity. Uh, but she has been on a lot of magazine covers, you know, the Canadian based muscle mag international, uh, featured her very prominently in this same month. And Terry Taylor, I guess, had been talking to her about trying to come over to WCW and supposedly Raven had found her and been trying to get her to come to ECW. But it winds up where she works out with uh, Ron Hutchinson in Toronto and, uh, winds up getting the gig here with the WWF. Obviously she goes on to be one of the most important women 
in WWE history. What can you tell us about early Trish Stratus? Well, back in the day, Trish was a fitness model and Trish was a very big name in the fitness world. So in Toronto and in Canada, she was probably the biggest name as far as fitness models go. So Trish worked out a lot. Trish loved the wrestling business. She worked out at the same places that the boys worked out in Toronto. She became friendly with people in the business and it was what she wanted to do. She had a strong desire. She had gone through Carl DeMarco, who was the head of the WWE in Canada. Uh, I talked to Trish on several different occasions and Carl, you know, had made the big push. So there were a lot of people that talked to Trish from, from Ron Simmons, Billy Gunn, Steve, um, just different guys that knew her from Toronto and Carl DeMarco used to bring her around just to be around the business and see if it's something that she really wanted. And Trish was one of those that good God, you talk about driven. She had tunnel vision and Trish saw herself in a certain way and whatever it was she had to do to get there, she was willing to do it. She was not afraid of hard work and she put it in to get to where, you know, she eventually got as one of the top female athletes ever. Um, so hit, you know, hats off to her. She busted her ass to get in the business because everybody thought, ah, she's a model, right? And they left out the fitness part of that. Ah, she's a model, beautiful young lady that you think I, is she gonna she gonna get in the ring and break a nail and cry? No, she got in the ring and busted her ass with everybody and proved that she was tough and she was willing to put the hard work in to do what she had to do. Let's keep it rolling here and talk about a meeting you had with the president of Dream Stage Entertainment. It says this meeting happened on November thirtieth in Anaheim, and then a second meeting on uh, December first. It's you and Victor Canones. The basics of the meeting is to set up uh, a formal proposal with financial terms to promote a major WWF show at the Tokyo Dome, uh, which probably wouldn't happen until the end of 2000. And apparently you guys were requesting a $1.3 million guarantee that according to Dave Meltzer, uh, and there was at least talk of a special on the Fuji network, which is one of Japan's major networks and would give them equal or better television coverage than even all Japan and new Japan had at the time. Talk to me a little bit about what you remember about meeting with, uh, the president of dream stage entertainment. It's kind of like, you know, every other meeting that we had with folks that had grandiose ideas of work with us. And, and we're the only ones that can get you into the Tokyo dome. We're the only ones that can promise you these huge gates and what have you. And, what they all boiled down to was great. You can talk great. What's the deal? Well, we'll go in and, and, uh, we'll get half, but we'll, we'll get you in the dome. And this is where people, they look at Japan and, and they hear a very, um, in my opinion, tainted, view of, of the Japanese wrestling market. One of the strongest wrestling markets anywhere in the world. And I'm not going to take that away from them. However, the way that they've done business in the past and at this time in the business was not what was represented by, um, your friends in the dirt sheet world. They, 
a lot of times they love to talk and they love to, to boast uh, grandiose numbers and what have you. But our meeting was here simply just to say, okay, give us a proposal. This is what we need. All right. Here is our um, bottom line as far as to be able to do something and go out and make it worth our while. Can you do that? Can you come back to us with a business proposal, not just talk? Come back to us with a business proposal with laid out in black and white what responsibilities you have, what you're going to bring to the table, and what you're going to deliver to us. And that's usually where they the meetings ended. And just like this one, that, that was the last meeting that we had with them because it was a lot of talk. And you usually had to find sponsors over there that were willing to foot the bill and buy all of those seats and use it as advertising for whatever they were plugging at the time. So it's just, it's a different, it was a different model than what we were used to everywhere else in the world. Well, I hate to even bring this up, but Dave Meltzer wrote, Sean Stasiak was fired at the December 6th tapings in Worcester, Mass by Jim Ross in front of everyone. Apparently Stasiak has secretly kept a tape recorder in his bag and would tape while he was gone to hear what people were saying behind his back. It was also allegedly tape recording locker room and road conversations and had gotten caught. The issue had been addressed and appeared to have blown over, but McMahon made the decision on December 6th to fire him. There was some concern among the wrestlers of what he had allegedly recorded and when he started doing so since nobody really knew since wrestling with shadows, that secret taping in the dressing room, isn't something the company looks fondly on. So to give a little context here in the wrestling with shadows documentary, Bret Hart was wearing a quote unquote wire. Really? It's just a microphone for the documentary he was shooting and he had a private conversation or so Vince thought with Vince McMahon. And then later they used that audio provided the closed captioning on the movie. So things that were being said backstage aired on the big screen and then on DVD and VHS and then on cable. Clearly the WWF doesn't want that to happen and right or wrong. This is the rap that that's what Sean was doing. I think Sean would disagree. Uh, of course, I think most everybody listening to this, I think we've touched on it before knows that he's gone on to have pretty great success as a chiropractor and he looks to be in better shape than ever, but not always a big fan of what we say of him here on the show. What do you remember of, uh, this firing and, and the way it was done, the very public firing seems unusual. Yeah, I don't know how true that is. I don't remember a public firing in front of everyone. Uh, doesn't seem like JR's style. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he, he could answer that better than I could because I sure as hell wasn't there for a public firing. I remember the incidents. I remember the uh, feeling from a lot of the boys that they were uncomfortable, feeling that private conversations would be recorded or anything like that whether Sean did it or didn't do it. Only he knows that. And, um, not me, but I, I could really care less about Sean Stasiak as far as, you know, that time frame or anything else. 
Alrighty. Let's get to Armageddon 1999. While we're really here, finally, over an hour in, let's talk about the pay-per-view. Now we get started with a uh, eight-team battle royal to earn a tag shot at the Royal Rumble pay-per-view. It goes about 11 minutes. The Acolytes get the big win. Uh, they do an, an opening here with the Main Street Posse, where they would get a member thrown over, and then a third guy would replace them, and they would continue. Pretty funny stuff here. Uh, you watched this one for the first time in a long time. What'd you think? Yeah. <laughs> You know, it was what it was, and it got got a lot of guys involved, and it just just kind of was what it was. Wasn't pretty and brutal in some spots, to say the least. But I do have to admit the stuff with the the posse, almost free birdish rules, if you will, um, was a little bit fun. Should mention the Hardys are the last to be eliminated. Um, acolytes here really coming into their own. It only gets a one star. These matches are always sort of a mess. Meltz would say the finish was good, but most of the match with typical bad battle royal stuff, wasting a lot of good talent in the process. But to your point, got a lot of folks on the show, got a lot of guys' paydays, so something's better than nothing. Yeah, it was it was it was kind of a space taker. Next up, we get Kurt Angle. He's interviewed by uh, Lillian Garcia in the back, and he's confused why the fans are always booing him. Of course, he's our Olympic hero. And then he has the task of taking on Steve Blackman. Kurt gets the win in six minutes and 56 seconds. And Meltzer would say angle came out to no reaction. Uh, he even missed a moonsault. Technically this was a good match, but the crowd chanting boring, whether it was because they're encouraged to by Angle's gimmick or because they didn't want to see these two wasn't apparent angle won with the German suplex. And after the match, Blackman attacked angle with the nunchucks. And for some reason, Blackman got a big pop for that. Three quarters of a star. We should mention Kurt had just made his TV debut the prior month at Survivor Series, beating Sean Stasiak. Sean was wrestling as meat at the time. So very early Kurt Angle. And for whatever reason, the, the fans hadn't quite caught on to the gag yet. They weren't with him. We know in time that would change. But it is fun just in a vacuum to go back and watch a Kurt Angle match before he was over, right? Yeah, but you know what? He was still damn good. Oh, for Kurt sure. was such such a natural, and being in with Steve, who also is a good amateur wrestler and was able to work that style, which is a very believable style, with Kurt, the audience didn't know how to take Kurt yet. So unfortunately, they they reacted with indifference until it's like, okay, show me something. And we were getting there. It was a slow build. You had to explain Kurt Angle and the fact that he believed everything that he said in the three eyes. And Kurt saw himself as the pinnacle, the, the greatest baby face to ever walk the face of the earth. And everyone should hit accept him as just that. So um, it was a slow build and it wasn't something that, that was going to get over overnight, but by God, it did eventually. Next up, we've got an evening gown pool match with Miss Kitty, BB, Ivory, and Jacqueline, the fabulous Moolah and Mae Young, your special guest referees. This is quite the interesting show here. Uh, the women are rolling around fully clothed in the pool. Then they tear Jackie's dress off and. She's struggling to keep herself from being exposed. BB has her dress torn off. And then ivory, 
uh, goes after the brawl, but somehow they don't get it off. And the fans are booing that Kitty then tears Ivory's dress off. She becomes the winner, but she said she wanted to be called the cat and said she promised that she was going to get naked. So she strips herself, including taking off her bra to reveal her bare breasts. Sergeant Slaughter arrives with a waiting towel. And then for humor purposes, Mae Young strips off her dress and threatens to go further, but Slaughter puts the towel on her as well. This doesn't age well, but this was pretty funny stuff at the time. But let's talk about the cat exposing herself for real. What's up with that? Oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, amateur hour, on unfortunately. The one, on the one hand, you're trying to get everybody to back it down and hey guys we can't say this and we can't do that and then on the other hand we got a girl letting them fly yeah well she wasn't supposed to let them fly <laughs> so the idea is sarge gets there and then give the illusion of letting them fly but no one gets to see i got you and she jumped the gun but she was fair to say she was a bit of an exhibitionist at the time and into that i think you could say that was fair to say Next up, this is an interesting match. Bob and Crash Holly take on Rikishi and Viscera. This feels uh. like, I don't know, a fever dream. Four minutes, 23 seconds. Meltzer would call it an awful match. Um, it gets negative one star. I don't know, man. Um, it was ugly. Meltzer says, after the match, Fatu and Viscera brawled, if that's what you'd call what they were doing. It would have been much better to uh, have them all turn on Rikishi together to allow Too Cool to make the save and have them dance at the end. Because quite frankly, the only reason fans pop for Fatu is the ending dance. Uh, not the best match on the show and just a weird pairing. God damn, it was fucking awful. Just yeah, It sucked. And uncomfortable to just go back and watch because how long was it? Four and a half minutes? It was too long. It was too long. Yeah, it was steal a quote from somebody else. It was bowling shoe ugly. <laughs> uh, next up, we've got Val Venus winning the European title over D'Lo Brown and British Bulldog in a three-way, uh, eight minutes and 20 seconds. Uh, Meltzer gave it negative half a star, saying the Bulldog was way off during this match, and there was lots of badly timed spots. Again, not their best look. Um, you hadn't seen this one in a long time. I know you're a big fan of Alvinas. Everybody was a bulldog fan. D'Lo Brown, one of the, uh, maybe forgotten heroes of wrestling, especially in this era, but this just didn't click. Is it because of the players or is it just, it's a three way and that's what they're all like individually, all three of them, excellent talents and, and very, very good, but no chemistry here, no chemistry whatsoever. It was almost as if the three guys had three completely different matches in mind. How important and no, is it? nobody was listening to the audience or each other. How important is it, uh, for an agent to be involved when it's a three-way like this? Maybe sometimes if it's two guys and you know, they've both got a bunch of experience and they're familiar with each other might not be as necessary, but with three guys like this, man, it feels like you've got, you know, what's, what's that old, uh, a lot of, uh, too many chefs in the kitchen, too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, it can be. And there needs to be one. There needs to be one leader that is able to make sure everybody is where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be. And this just looked like everybody was in their own match. 
So everybody was calling their own shit. Whether that's what it was or not, that's what it looked like. And when you go back and look at it later, it was, wow. It was it was getting to be one of those brutally hard to watch shows. I think the rumor is uh, on the heels of this show, D'Lo Brown's contract is going to be up, and there's talk that he was even in discussion with WCW. Did you ever hear hear that D'Lo might be having talks with WCW, or were you concerned that he was going to leave? I don't think anybody was really concerned that he was going to leave. I think whenever anybody's contract was coming up or anything like that, there are always those rumors floating out there that, oh my God, they may go to WCW. And that was usually just talk, automatic talk whenever somebody's contract was up or for a way, a way for a guy to maybe think they're getting a, a better deal to say, oh, well, you know, talking to these guys. But at this point in time, I don't know that WCW was that big of a threat. Um, and if he wanted to go there, more power to him. But I don't think anybody on our side that there was any issue. If he, there was confidence that D'Lo was going to stick around and move on. You think D'Lo could ever have an opportunity to work with uh, WWE behind the scenes in the future? He leave well, I think terms? he could, yeah. I, I believe he has before, but I'm not really sure. Um I think Delos, you know, has been a good agent and would probably definitely help out. Next up, we've got a match between former tag champions, Kane and X-Pac at Survivor Series. Kane beat X-Pac by DQ after DX would attack him. And then on the November 29th, Raw, X-Pac would interfere in a tag match with Kane and Big Show against Bossman and Viscera. X-Pac would cost Kane the match by hitting him with a chair. And afterwards, he would also attack Kane's manager, Tori. Later in the night, X-Pac will team up with the New Age Outlaws to wrestle Rock and Sock and their mystery partner, who winds up being Kane. And that match would end when Al Snow would interfere and attack DX. And then on the December 2nd SmackDown, Kane would lose to Viscera by countout after being distracted by X-Pac. So here we're going to see X-Pac do an interview saying Kane can only win by pinfall, while X-Pac can only win by leaving the cage. So a little wrinkle to the traditional cage match rules. It only gets a star in three quarters. It goes eight minutes and 12 seconds. Kane gets the pinfall win. Um, there's even some, some handcuffs involved here where road dog is, is involved and Billy Gunn's involved and they're slamming the cage door on Kane, throwing him handcuffs. And of course, eventually Kane breaks the handcuffs and Xbox trying to climb over, but Kane's going for the door, which is not supposed to be the finish here. He stops Xbox from hitting the floor puts him on his shoulders, carries him back to the door, throws him back in and uh, comes off the cage with a clothesline, pins him with a tombstone. Meltzer would say the finish was good, but the match lacked heat. You know, for whatever reason, I just wasn't feeling this feud at the time. Now with the benefit of hindsight, it was better than I thought it was at the time. I don't know why it just didn't connect with me then. What'd you think watching this one back after the, a a long time? I thought again, looking at the main participants of Xbox, Kane, and Tori. And it was a little love triangle there, the whole nine yards. All three had chemistry. So exactly the opposite of what you had in the match before with, with Val and, and Bulldog. You had chemistry in this match. You had two guys that liked each other, and you had Tori who got along with both guys and and was there. And I think this was probably, in my opinion, when Tori was with Kane and X-Pac and 
through that whole little run was the best stuff that she did while she was here. And I, I enjoyed the match. I thought it was a good match, slow at times, but it was a cage match and it told a story. And so to me, I enjoyed the hell out of it. And what I liked best was just watching those three jail. And it was a good story. Let's talk about the good story you're going to tell next. We've got Chris Jericho in China wrestling for the intercontinental title. That's a real sentence at the survivor series, Jericho and China are wrestling and China gets the win retaining the title on the November 15th match. China and miss Kitty distract Jericho during a match with King grill, which allows King grill to win on the November 25th SmackDown China and Kitty cost Jericho his match with big show for the world title. And on the November 29th, uh, raw, a match is made here at Armageddon for the intercontinental title. They go 10 minutes and 17 seconds. And you won't believe this Meltzer writes, this was actually the best wrestling match on the show, which is a real credit to Jericho because China was really exposed with her bad looking offense, particularly the forearms, which she needs to retire from her repertoire that Jericho had to sell. On her bouncing off the ropes, like someone beginning wrestling school, uh, ultimately Jericho gets the win. China's going to tap out to the walls of Jericho, of course. And after the match, China's going to interrupt Jericho's interview and tell him that she's a better wrestler last month, but he's a better wrestler this month and shake his hand two and a quarter stars. It's, uh, better than we expect going in to say the least. What'd you think? I thought it was damn good. And again, it spoke to how good Jericho is. And you go back to the shit earlier on about the dirt sheets and everything kind of knocking Chris and so on and so forth. Chris went out and made this work and Chris made it great. I think that people kind of looked at it as, Oh my God, Chris Jericho is being punished. Chris Jericho looked at it as here's an opportunity to shine and use that opportunity to go out and, take what some people thought oh, he can't work with China. You can't get anything out of her. And Jericho did. He did get something out of China and it was a fun match with a fun story again. And it all made sense. I, uh, I saw somebody the other, not too terribly long ago, say something like, you know, our job in the WWE is very easy. All we're expected to do is be in the best shape of our life. Have a good attitude be ready as long as we can do that we'll be here for a long time and it seems like in times like these even though maybe the booking wasn't exactly what he would have hoped for up to this point jericho is adhering to that and it's working out do you think that's solid advice for anybody in the company or anybody trying to make their spot in the company absolutely and jericho's a good example of that eddie guerrero was another one where and again, I hate to keep pointing at, at China, but people thought that, oh, God, they're putting Eddie with China. And Eddie and China made that work and took what some people thought was a negative and made it a positive and told a great story there as well. So it's what you do with the opportunities and the time that you have. And that's, a, that's up to the talent themselves. Make it work and make it the very best that you can make it and make it better than, than it's written. You know, if you're that good, yes, you can do that. And that's what the top guys have always done from, from Austin and Taker and rock and Hulk and all the way down the line. 
they've always taken what was given to them, made it better, and you take it from there. Next up, we've got a tag title match. Let's tell you how we got here. On the November 22nd Raw, Rock was scheduled to wrestle Big Boss Man and Prince Albert in a tag match with a partner of his choosing. He chose the audience to be his partner, which made it a handicap match. And then Mankind winds up coming out to help him and reunite the team. And they defeat Boss Man and Albert. On the November 23rd Raw, Rock and Sock would defeat the Hollies and they become the number one contender for the tag titles here at Armageddon. Which brings us to this match. They're going to be challenging the new age outlaws and rock and mankind get the win 16 minutes and 28 seconds. Meltzer would say it's a decent match, but a weak finish. And he says the fans were incredibly hot for rock as they always are. There's a, a fun moment here where the rock pulls Billy Gunn's shirt over his head and pounced on him. Uh, interesting back and forth here. Of course, eventually mankind's going to hot tag rock pieces of the rock bottom on gun. And then when snow interferes for the DQ mankind and snow brawl after the match and rock uses the rock bottom on both Al snow and road dog. Dave is down on the Al snow run in in hindsight. Do you think they should have put the uh, tag straps on him here? No, I don't. And the only reason I say that is first of all, new age outlaws were red hot and with where we were going with rock, you didn't want to saddle him with the tag team championships here. And Mick wanted to do something with Al snow. So again, trying to utilize all the talent that you have there and put them in the right positions. This was an opportunity for Al snow to step up and Mick to do something different. And you don't hurt rock on the way and you keep your new age outlaws good. So I enjoyed it. I thought it was, was pretty damn good. I forgot about the Al Snow shit until we got into it, and it, it was fun. Next up is our world title match. At the Survivor Series, Big Show defeated Boss Man and his team oh. of Prince Albert, Viscera, and Midian in a four-on-one elimination match. And then later that night, Big Show would replace an injured Stone Cold in a uh, triple threat match for the world title against Triple H and The Rock. Big Show ultimately pins Triple H to win the title. And then on November 15th on Raw, Bossman becomes the number one contender when he defeated The Rock in a hardcore match. So believe it or not, here in 1999, Big Bossman's getting a title shot on pay-per-view. Yeah, it goes three minutes and 11 seconds before Big Show gets the win. Meltzer would say, Show's wearing gym shorts and a t-shirt in the ring really takes away from the impact of his size. Uh, working next to the deceptively huge Prince Albert certainly doesn't help either. Show choke slammed Albert through the Spanish announcer table, and the crowd started loud, boring chants just two minutes into the match. Show immediately goes to the finish with a choke slam. Quarter star. This uh, was fucking horrible, too. <laughs> we should mention that this this whole thing is the payoff for the big boss man and the whole your daddy's dead. And the whole thing through, we've talked about that a thousand times, but through the cemetery and blah, blah, blah. Meltzer would write the big show cancer angle was originally conceived by Terry Taylor. And the idea was to rebuild him back to a top level star, which he'd fallen from the plan's conclusion was nothing like it turned out. The idea was that the father would die and be cremated. And after the funeral undertaker would go to his house and steal the urn with the ashes and pour them down the toilet and flush it. The bill to an undertaker show headline program. Did you ever hear of this 
alternate ending of ha 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 your daddy's dead storyline can't say that i did yeah it sounds like the shits yeah let's get to our main event triple h and vince mcmahon as we've mentioned with austin out we're gonna call an audible and who better to give the hot tag to than vince mcmahon uh we know how we got here sort of laid the groundwork it's a no holds barred match and on the december 6th raw triple h suggests a stipulation that if vince wins the match triple h and stephanie's marriage would be annulled but if triple h wins he would be granted a world title match and of course vince agrees makes that a stipulation these guys unbelievably get 29 minutes and 45 seconds they hammer it in conversation that Vince McMahon is 53 and yeah, this match has everything in it. Crutches, punches, garbage cans, guardrails, ladders, a gas can, uh, lots of blood, a pipe, a sledgehammer. What didn't they use? The kitchen sink? Everything else is here. Well, you needed that. You needed that because, you know, Vince isn't going to be able to go out there and give you a, a great wrestling match. So he needed all the gaga around him to, again, camouflage and make the best out of it. I think it was probably a little too long. However, I thought the match was a fun match and a great finish with the turn of Stephanie and all that shit that I don't think anybody saw coming. Yeah. Let's talk so, about that just for a minute. Helmsley gets a pipe, by the way, Vince is pouring blood. Helmsley's used a gas can and put, uh, Vince's bloody face right in front of Stephanie. Then he picks up a pipe, puts the pipe down and grabs a sledgehammer. McMahon gives him a low blow. It hits Helmsley with the pipe. And then he picks up the sledgehammer and Stephanie jumps in and she says she wants to hit him with the sledgehammer. So then Helmsley takes the sledgehammer from Vince goes to hit Stephanie, but Vince jumps in the way and takes the blow. And after a second blow, Helmsley pins McMahon and then Helmsley's teasing. He's going to take out Stephanie with the sledgehammer, but instead drops the sledgehammer and Stephanie and Hunter hug and kiss to end the show. So it's a star and a half. And Meltzer says, even with the great angle. If Hogan was in the same match, people would be giving it negative stars. So not a ton of wrestling action in a traditional sense, heavy on story. And to your point, the swerve at the end, nobody could really see coming. I feel like we should mention too. It's been explained that triple H hyper extended his knee earlier in the day when they're sort of walking through the match with this. So he's out here hobbling around doing his best to carry a guy who's while he knows a lot about wrestling has not actually wrestled a lot and he's 50 something years old and it's the main event of a pay-per-view and he's essentially standing in for Steve Austin, the biggest star in the business. Kudos to triple H for making this work. Yeah. Dragging his leg through the damn thing. And, and I, I had forgotten again until go back, watch it. And earlier in the day, while walking through stuff had screwed his knee up. So it was, 
to you know you add that to it and you go even more remarkable as you go back and watch it but again when you talk about story the story was there and i think the sorts the story sucked people in like i said as far as application and as far as overall the match it could have been 10 minutes shorter and gotten everything out of it but at the same time it had emotion. It had everything that you wanted in a story and a big finish at the end that left people going, what the fuck did I just see? And to that end, it worked. And I enjoyed the hell out of it. And I know what you're thinking. You gotta be thinking, well, why in the world would Stephanie do this? They explained it the next day. Uh, Vince would arrive on raw with a sledgehammer starts pounding on a door that has says DX on it. He finally gets to the ring, calls out triple H. Stephanie comes out. She's sporting a new look and Meltzer would even say she has a great promo. And the gist is she's basically saying Vince used her to get at Austin and she was waiting for a year to get back at him. And the triple H, her husband was the only one who stood up to Vince and kept outsmarting him. Of course, the fans are chanting slut at her because that's where we are in wrestling. And then Triple H comes out, Vince and Shane leave the arena, leaving Triple H and Stephanie in charge of the show. And, uh, as you might imagine, we've got the outlaws wrestling Triple H and test later test works, the whole match and Stephanie's cheering for him. And despite all of this, we see Triple H turn on test. They all beat him up. Stephanie slapping him around. Triple H leaves him with uh, a bunch of chair shots. And this essentially is the beginning of the McMahon Helmsley era with them being in charge of the shows. There's huge posters put on either side of the Titan Tron, you know, of triple H and Stephanie. And this does a monster rating, a 6.1 nitro falls all the way to a 2.8 really remarkable, especially when you consider that Monday night football is airing here and it's getting a 13.2. So usually Monday night football spells disaster for wrestling. Not here. It's even higher. So this is a storyline that even though fans look back at it and say, Oh, I didn't like that. They were digging it here. Yeah, they were. And it was the beginning of the McMahon Helmsley era. And it was something that was different. And, you know, for whatever reason, people, people dug it and they were into it. So it made sense. It, believe it or not, yeah, you go. It was logical. It was a logical soap opera fucking story. And to that end, I, I look at it and go back and think, yeah, you know, it, it it took us for the next basically, you know, several years with those characters. And I look at the, the whole show overall, top to bottom, wasn't the best show in the world. But it had some high spots to it. Like, again, I go back to the Jericho and China match. I enjoyed that, and I enjoyed Vince and Triple H. So, yeah, there was some good, but there was a lot of stinky in there, too. It just can't. You can't go, hey, that was a great fucking show. It was an okay show. What did you think about uh, Stephanie's performance here? It it does feel like, you know, she's um, way ahead of the curve. She's always been a great television performer. I don't think we really knew that until right here. This is when we really get to see how good of a television character she's capable of being. I mean, a natural heel. Yes, she is. And she was able to go out and pull that off. There were, there were doubters. And I think that the doubt 
that Stephanie felt in some people that it's like, okay, she's young. She's never done this before. This is all new. I think she used every bit of that to pull off that performance that she did and become the performer she became. How did she feel about, you know, being put on TV? Was she comfortable with being on TV and and playing this character? Or is it something that Vince had to coax out of her? No, I think she was comfortable once she got into it. In in the beginning, I think there was a little bit of you're you're new to it, and there's a bit of just jitters, if you will, that when someone has never been on camera before, there's a little bit of jitters. And you didn't get that with Stephanie. And especially at this time where it's a new character, it's a completely different character than what she had been accustomed to playing on our television show. And it's like, she's either going to pull it off or it's going to fail miserably. And she pulled it off. She went out there. Her job was be a evil, disgusting bitch. And she was able to go out there and, and she went from a couple weeks before that being the sympathetic baby face to being the most hated in a matter of weeks. That's good. That's, that says a lot about a character. Well, you've gone to being one of the most hated, but it didn't take a few weeks. It took a long time, but you totally redeemed yourself with Armageddon 1999. A little bonus action for you here. Happy New Year, everyone. Appreciate you hanging in with us for another successful year of something to wrestle. 2019, perhaps the most interesting year in the history of our show, uh, certainly for Bruce Pritchard. Coming up this Friday, we got the Sheiky Baby coming your way. We'll talk about the iron cheek if you've got a question there's still a chance to ask that question fire it off on twitter just look for at pritchard show we'll be back with you next week for new year's revolution 2005 on the 17th look forward to royal rumble 1990 uh on the 24th it's all about the royal rumble from 1995 and then on the 31st we're going to revisit the radicals and i think that's going to be one of our best shows we've ever done We appreciate your support here. Hope you hit the subscribe button. Hope you tell a friend. If you think we've earned it, leave us a five-star review and uh, do us a big favor. Go subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're starting to put more and more stuff up over there. Lots of different clips and full shows. And uh, we would love to have you hit the subscribe button there as well. Uh, Until next time, he is Bruce Pritchard. I am Conrad Thompson, and we are out of time. We'll see you this Friday, just a couple days from now, for more Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Happy New Year in Shaka Khan. Even that other fucking guy I always talk about. You know, Pashovia. For to be. Next week you get humbled, baby. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.